I have been teaching through a series on gospel truths. I think most of us remember why I'm going through this. If you don't, well, at the end of February, I was reminded, sadly, of Christians, or at least professed Christians out there, who say you don't need to repent of your sins in order to be saved. Well, what did Jesus say? Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And what uh, Peter preached in Acts 2, Paul preached in the book of Acts. So I decided I need to preach a message just reminding us and teaching us of the necessity of that. As I thought about it, I thought, well, what do we need to repent of? Well, sin. So we need to understand what sin is. Well, you can only understand what sin is as you know who God is. And we all know who God is from the scriptures. So what began as a one-message series, now wasn't that really a long series, one, one message, became, a, well, pretty significant one. This is technically message seven, but the last three focused on Jesus Christ. And so I called that message C-A, C-B, and C-C. Don't worry about that right now. The first message that we looked at was that the authority of Scripture. That must be our only authority for what we believe and how we live as Christians. It can't be based on what I think. That's how the unbelievers think. That's how you used to think as an unbeliever. What you thought was right. What you estimated to be correct. What you thought God was. And that is wrong eternally wrong we must look to who god is then we looked at the triune god he eternally necessarily exists as a trinity one god eternally existing as three persons and those persons are not greater or less than the other they're all fully god not three different gods but one god then we looked at sin how great sin is how sin came into, into this world. How it spread through humanity, through Adam. How every human being, as a descendant of Adam, is in Adam. And thus is lost in sin. Corrupted by sin. Damned because of sin. And we looked at Jesus Christ. His perfect life. His substitutionary death. His resurrection from the dead last week. Amen. How he has risen and defeated sin and death. And then we come to this doctrine here, this gospel truth of election to salvation. And you might think, wait a minute, I thought you were teaching about gospel truths. Well, what does gospel mean? Gospel means good news, doesn't it? It means good news. And truth is whatever, do you remember from seven, eight weeks ago? Truth is whatever conforms to the whose mind? To God's mind. Truth is whatever conforms to the mind of God. Can we know God's mind about salvation? Sure can. It's in the Bible. This is how we know God's truth. Here's some news then. For all have sinned, say it with me, and fallen short of the glory of God. Who's included in that? Everyone. All have sinned. All are lost. All are depraved. No one has any hope. Wait. That's good news? It's news, isn't it? 
Is that essential news for the gospel? It sure is. It is essential news. But we would not call that good news. So let's talk about some more news. More news. God the Son came and lived the perfect life. Became a human being. He died not for his sin. He had none. He died as a substitute for sinners. And he rose again on the third day victoriously. Now that's good news. But the question then is, who can benefit from what Jesus did? Who can benefit from his perfect life, his substitutionary death, his victory over death through his resurrection? Who can benefit from that? Well, anyone who repents and believes. Didn't Jesus say, whosoever believeth on him shall not perish? Did he not say that? And did not God say in Scripture that he is not willing that any should repent, but that all should come, not any, that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance? Now there's, now there's, a, there's, a, there's an apostate statement there. God is not willing that any should repent. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance? That, it is good news about Christ. How can you benefit? You need to repent and believe. So jumping ahead a couple weeks, what's repentance? Don't worry about writing it down. I'll teach through it, okay? But repentance means turning from sin with a sorrow for it and a hatred of it and turning to God with humble love and obedience. A sinner must repent and a sinner must believe. These are, these are both essential actions. Repent and believe. Re believing is receiving Christ. It's resting on Christ alone for salvation. But the problem is, that we saw in Romans 3.11, how many seek after God? None. How are they going to repent and believe? They don't want to. And because of their sin, because Satan blinds their eyes, they can't. That's good news. Sinners' only hope is if God saves them. And so I ask, why should God save any sinner? Every sinner is a rebel against God, aren't they? Every sinner transgresses, breaks God's word, don't they? Why should God save any sinner? Do some sinners deserve it? more than others because of who they are? Do some deserve it more because of, well, that sinner did this, they did something? What sinner deserves to be saved? But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How will sinners be saved? Throughout the Bible, God said, he will save sinners. He said that he has determined to save sinners. There is no hope outside of God's determination to save sinners. From Genesis to Revelation, I don't have the time today to walk through all these passages, but when you read your Bible, you will see that God saves sinners. Is he forced to? Is he compelled to? Does he look at some sinner and say, you know, 
You're, you're a notch above the rest. No, that's not the case. Let's walk through first Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14. I gave Trace a difficult assignment today because in the Greek, Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14 is all one sentence. Talk about a run-on sentence. But it is all true. And here we have an opening praise that Paul recites to this church that I'll talk about in a little bit of God's great grace and salvation. He, first of all, number one, praises the Father. Praises the Father for his work of salvation. And as soon as I say that, you're probably already filling out the other two points, aren't you? Well, look with me. Verses 3 through 6. Praises the Father for his work of salvation. And so he's writing to this Ephesian church in Acts 19 during his third missionary journey. There were idolaters who had magic books. Remember when we walked through that several months ago? That came to several lifetimes worth of money. They burned them. These are idolaters. And God saved them. And he says here, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And then in verses 4 to 6, he gives reasons to praise the Father. Verse 4, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him. Why should we praise the Father? Because he chose to save some sinners. Why else should we praise the Father? Verse 5, he's predestined us to adoption. You are his enemy. He made you his son and his daughter, Christian. Praise the Lord for that. Why else should we praise the Lord? He's predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ according to the good pleasure of his will. God, in his good pleasure, sought to do that. Verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. God's free grace. These former idolaters, God has saved. And not just them. It's not like Paul's writing to them from his ivory tower. It's not like Paul's writing to them uh, from, as someone who perfectly obeyed God do you remember how Paul described himself? He was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a murderer of Christ's church. That's who Paul was. He includes himself in this. God saved us. God the Father saves and we must praise him. Number two, praise the Son for his work of salvation. Verses 7 to 12, we read of his redemption and the inheritance we have. Let's look at the redemption in verses 7 through 10. The nature of the redemption. In him we have redemption through his blood, his death and his on the cross. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us. The basis of redemption. Verse 9, he's made known to us the mystery of his will. According, here's the basis, to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself what's the goal of this redemption verse 10 that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in christ both which are in heaven which are on earth in him that's the goal of redemption read of the inheritance we have in christ verses 11 to 12 and because of this inheritance we must praise the son 
In him also we've obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. The goal of this inheritance, verse 12, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. You hearing some repetition here? To the praise of his glory, his free grace, his sovereign grace. And then number three, we praise the Holy Spirit. Praise the Holy Spirit for his work of salvation. Every person of the Trinity is involved in a believer's salvation. Every person of the Godhead is involved in, the, in a believer's salvation. Specifically, verse 13, the Spirit is the seal of salvation. He's the guarantee. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. The Spirit sealed you, and the Spirit is the seal. He guarantees that. He's the pledge of salvation, verse 14. The guarantee of our inheritance. He's kind of like the down payment, making uh, guaranteeing it will happen until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. The Spirit, he is the one who saves. He's the one who works this out. There's some truths we need to understand about election here. So the gospel truth of election. Number one, we're going to consider several things about the meaning and aspects of election. Now, is this something I teach about every week? No. Okay, but on occasion, as scripture presents it, as it comes up, and it does come up a lot, we do need to consider it. Um, but it is denied by many. They'll say it's not that important. But as I said, it pops up everywhere. So we need to have a right understanding. I give you a definition. Before the foundation of the world, God chose to save some sinners in Jesus Christ. So let's look, just from Ephesians, at some different aspects of that. Who's the subject, first of all, of this? Look at verse 4. The subject is the one who is the acting person. Okay, Who's the one who's doing the choosing or the electing? Verse 4. He chose us. That is the Father, God. He did, he's the one who did the choosing. He did that. Verse 4. When did this happen? Number 3. In other words, the time. Verse 4 tells us. Before the foundation of the world, before anything was created, God chose to save some. Did God choose to save every sinner? No, he didn't. You might say, wait, this isn't fair. Hold that thought. We'll get to it. Okay, we'll get to that. And remember, the first message that I gave, what is our authority? Scripture. It's God's word. We have to let God speak. Who are the objects of election? So the subject, who's the object? Verse 4. He chose us. The object are sinners. Sinners. The object of salvation is individual sinners, not merely the plan of salvation. Some teach that, that God's election is about his plan of salvation. Well, it's necessarily part of that because Revelation says the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. But it is of individuals here, individual sinners. And not every sinner, some 
sinners. God chooses to save. Well, what's the basis of God's choosing? Well, let me back up. What was the basis in eternity past before he made everything? On what basis did God choose to save some sinners? Well, this is verses 4, 5, and 11. We'll see this. Verse 4. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, if you're using the New King James, it puts a comma after love. I think it's best grammatically to put the comma after him. And in love goes with having predestined us. So the first basis of his choosing to save is his love. Now, I'm not going to make it hang just on that. So you can also add 2 Timothy 1.9. 2 Timothy 1.9 says, According to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, he called us with a holy calling. Grace is his love. You could also write down about his love here. Romans 8.29. Romans 8.29. For those whom he foreknew... He predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And you might say, oh, I got you there, pastor. Hold on a second. Trying to take Dan Greenfield out of this. What does the scripture say? Foreknowledge is not God's looking ahead down the quarters of time from the point of eternity past, seeing uh, who's going to say or who's going to believe. That's not foreknowledge. When you look at foreknowledge in the Bible, it's not knowing ahead. It is Another word for his love. And you look, he foreknows people, not actions. He knows people. That is setting his love on them. In the Old Testament, it's used, he's, he foreknew Israel. In the New Testament, he foreknows these individuals. So the first basis of God's election is his love. But also, <coughs> excuse me, also, we have verse 5. The end of verse 5. According to the good pleasure of his will. And then verse 11. In him we have attained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So on what basis did God choose to save some sinners? His love? His perfect will? His good pleasure? Those are the three reasons were given in Scripture why he chose to save some sinners. Well, let's back up to the beginning. Is there anything in any sinner that forces God to save them? No, we are all rebels in eternity. As God saw us in eternity past, we were all sinners. None deserved that salvation. But yet, some still try to shoehorn human will into the doctrine of election. Now, shoehorn, there's a word you don't use very much. Remember when you used to use a shoehorn to get your foot into your shoe? We don't do that anymore now. We're too impatient. What do we do instead? Just kind of jam our foot right in our shoe, and you keep doing that. What's, gonna, what's that going to do to your shoe? It's going to wreck it, isn't it? Okay. So you use the shoehorn to kind of fit your foot in there. That's what people often do with the doctrine of election that the Bible tells us about. Well, we need to get man in there somehow. 
How, how can we do that? And they'll say, God chose those whom he saw would believe in him. And eternity passed. God looked ahead towards sinners and he saw that one there and that one there and that one there. When the gospel goes to them, they will believe. And so I will choose those to salvation. So what comes first then? And what's the basis of that, of God's choosing? It is their believing. Well, then election is based on sinners' faith. And have you remember, how much of a person does sin corrupt? The entire person, their mind, their will, their affections. Everyone is controlled by their sin nature, their beliefs, their perspective, their lifestyle, and their decisions. So are you saying we're just a robot then, Pastor? No. Do we have free will? Well, we have to define the terms. What are we talking about there? No one has a will that can act contrary to God. Remember Job 38 to 41? No one has a will that can act contrary to their nature. You cannot act contrary to your nature. And the illustration I've used along this line is, well, dogs and cats. Sometimes you can see dogs and cats lying together. Go to the Kinter's home for an example. That's rare, isn't it? You will never see a dog do this. I choose to meow. Meow. And you will never hear a dog do what? Bark. It, okay. Yeah. I have a sinus headache this morning. And I, I told someone here, it's just going to mess me up. And I was right. Who I don't know who said that to. So now I have God not wanting people to, well, this is bad. I'm glad you're catching it. You get the point. Our will is directed by our sin nature. It is directed by our sin nature. So you can't choose contrary to that. And that sense of free will you do not have. But who makes your decisions? I'm seeing everyone right now make voluntary free decisions. In what way? Some of you have taken your pen. Some of you are putting your hand in your Bible like this. Some of you are kind of fixing your hair. Some are just kind of like this. That is a decision that you made. In that sense, that is a free decision. You are not forced to do that. And who is responsible for your decisions? You are. I am not responsible for your decisions. You are responsible for your decisions. So the idea that you cannot find in Scripture, can we find in Scripture statements that tell us what God's choosing to save some is based on? Yep, I gave you three right here. His love, His will, and His good pleasure. You will never find a single statement where it says His choosing to save some is based on on action of a sinner. You will not find it. If that was so, let's just say, say for sake of argument, it was so that God, he saw those who would believe and he, he chose to save those. Well, was God forced to choose them then? Now think about that. Was God compelled? I see they're going to believe. 
I guess I have to choose them. Was God compelled to do that? And another thing, if he wasn't, could God, knowing someone would believe, refuse to choose them to salvation? Do you see where that leads? It is always best, it is always safest to just stick with the scriptures and what it says here and conform our mind to what God says. Election is not based on faith. It results in faith. We'll see more about that in the next week. But that's the basis. More time on that because there's a lot of misunderstanding there. Number six, what's the reason or the purpose of election? Verse six, verse 12, verse 14, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Let me show you a couple other passages. Look at Ephesians 2, verse 1. Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together, has made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Note verse 7, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Boy, what a passage we have here. What we were like? Lost, condemned, damned. Hopeless. What did God do? He sent Christ and he saves through Christ. For what purpose? That we would be to the praise of the glory of his grace. For sake of time, I won't read it, but well, yeah, let's do it. Chapter 3, verse 14. It's a short passage. God is honored as we read his word. Ephesians 3, verses 14 to 21. Ephesians 3, verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Boy, Paul prays here. I pray that you Christians, you're going to know the riches of God's grace better. It's width. It's length. It's depth. It's height. So that as you know it more, you will praise God more for his great grace. The objective, number seven, of, of election is salvation of sinners in Jesus Christ. Verse 4. The objective of salvation is verse 4. The salvation of sinners 
and Jesus Christ. And not just verse 4, but all this passage here. And have you remember that everything that's involved in salvation here is the objective, not just the moment of conversion. Isn't that often our focus? Sadly, just get them saved. And that's good enough. And that's all that's needed. Is that what God thinks about? When you read Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, he didn't talk about just repentance and faith. He talked about an inheritance and adoption and, and all these wonderful blessings, all these things. Verse 4, that you would be entirely holy. You would be entirely holy. Also, verse 4, you would be without blame. That is a goal, an objective, and a reason God chose to save you, Christian. You will be holy. You will be blameless. He chose you so that you would be adopted, verse 5, brought into his family. He chose you, verse 7, so that you would be redeemed from the power and the penalty of sin. He chose you, verse 7, so that your sins would be forgiven. He chose you, verse 13, so that you would have a future inheritance. All these blessings of salvation are wrapped up, involved, and the objective of God's saving you. And these are all found in only one person. Jesus Christ, verse 3, verse 7. No hope of salvation outside of Christ. So in eternity past, God saw every human being that was a sinner. And who deserves? Which sinner deserves eternal punishment? Every sinner. And the fact that God chose to save any, to the praise of His glory of His grace, He was not forced, He was not compelled to save any. Say, it's not fair. Did God have to save anyone? No. And so when He chose to save some, it was always and only in Jesus Christ because it's only in Christ that your sins can be forgiven, that you have a hope of life and eternal, eternal life. What is the means of conversion number eight? Well, I am going to touch on this now. I'm going to give an entire message on this next week. So I'm only going to touch on it right now. But we see this in verse 13. So God in eternity past chose to save some. How did he work that out? In real time, so that his elect would be saved. Verse 13. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the spirit of promise. It is by hearing and believing the gospel. That is how God saves his elect. By their hearing the gospel and their believing the gospel. Those whom God chose in eternity past to save, they will hear the gospel. And they will believe the gospel. See, Pastor, that's quite a statement. Can you back it up with scripture? Acts 13.48 Acts 13.48 it says there, as many has been appointed to eternal life, believed. 
We must, and I'm going to hit this hard next week, we must preach the gospel. Who must we preach the gospel to? Just the elect? Do you know who the elect are? I don't. What does the Bible say who we should preach the gospel to? Remember lesson one? The authority of scripture? Every person. Every person. Do we know who the elect are? Not before they're saved. But can you know who the elect are? Yeah. They will hear and they will believe. That's repeated again throughout Scripture. It is repeated again throughout Scripture. Why is this an important doctrine, number two? What's the significance of this? I call this a big picture doctrine. A big picture doctrine. And you need a big picture. Well, why do you need a big picture? So that you can have a big picture, okay? When you don't know the big picture or you ignore it, there are going to be serious mistakes and errors. Because then you're just focusing on one little knot of the tree, one little crook in the branch. You need to see the big picture, and this is part of that big picture that God has chosen to save some sinners. It is a big picture doctrine along the lines of the very first message I gave, the authority of Scripture. So regarding election... God has ordained the means by which he will save his elect. And if election is not known, or if it is denied, that means the means God has ordained will be either ignored or twisted to fit human ends. What can we get? What can we do to gain a hearing for the gospel? What can we do to help sinners believe? What can we do you see where the emphasis there is? What can I do? And this has been a plague throughout the church history. Let's give you two examples from church history. In the 1800s, the early 1800s, one of the greatest evangelists who ever lived, one of my heroes that you probably never heard of except for me, Asahel Nettleton, tremendous evangelist and preacher of the gospel who would go from place to place, would calmly with authority, preach the gospel. Sinners were saved. Churches were started. Towns were transformed. And at that same time, another man came about who didn't like that doctrine, who said there's something that we can do. We can meet certain steps to cause a revival to happen. Nelton rightly understood who's the one who brings life or brings revival. God does that. There was another man, Charles Finney. You've probably heard of him, haven't you? He said there are certain steps when each time you meet those, God always brings revival. It's just a matter of going through those steps every time. Charles Finney is the one who really popularized the come forward invitation kind of thing. You've got to get people to act so that they will do that. And there is an entire area of New York State that is called the Burned Over District. Because as he went through there and he preached his false gospel through these false means, people, they made a verbal agreement, they made a verbal assent to the gospel, but there was no true repentance. They thought they were saved. They prayed a prayer. 
but it was not a genuine work because it was their work. They were trusting in themselves. Much of the purpose-driven church stuff that you hear and see about today goes right along that. We need to make our worship services so that they're pleasing to unbelievers. Now just stop a minute. This is a meeting of whom? The church. The saints. If you will, the elect. Can unbelievers join us? Absolutely. And they join us as we worship the Lord. They join us to hear the word. That is our focus, to focus on our God. And as we do so, 1 Corinthians 14, 24 and 25, they will see God's for his holiness and greatness. But much of the purpose-driven stuff today, they said, bring in the world, make your things more comfortable so that worldlings will feel comfortable in your assembly. And think about that. He chose you to be holy and blameless in his sight. Where should that be seen if not in a church service? The importance and significance of election. Let me give you several things here. Number one, I already touched on our worship. Our worship. Verses 3 to 14 were not penned as a theological article about election. It was a greeting to a church where the author blesses and praises God for salvation. And that author at one time had been an enemy and a blasphemer of the faith. Right understanding of this doctrine should cause us to say, Lord, thou art great. You alone are worthy of praise. There are no proud worshipers, only humble ones. And nothing humbles like a right knowledge of the doctrine of election. It is essential truth for a right worship of our God. A right knowledge of this. A second reason this is important is that salvation is of the Lord. Jonah said that, Jonah 2.9. Salvation is of the Lord from beginning to end. Salvation is of the Lord. Our hope and our confidence is not in what we do, but it is in God. It is in what Christ has done. That must direct your life, Christian. Your submission is to him. Your obedience is to him. The good work that he began, what will he do? He'll bring it to the completion. Philippians 1.6 A third point of application to take away from this doctrine. This doctrine gives confidence in evangelism. You weren't expecting that one, were you? But this doctrine gives confidence in evangelism. When I'm talking with an unbeliever, there's several things that I know, but at least three that I think about when I'm talking with an unbeliever. First thing, I know this unbeliever, well, he's an unbeliever. He's depraved, he's lost, he's blind. Satan's blinding his eyes, his heart is hardened by sin. He's hopelessly lost. Uh, he can't save himself. A second thing I keep in mind is Romans 1, 16 and 17. The gospel of God, it's 
powerful. It's powerful to salvation to everyone who believes, regardless of who they are. This individual is lost. He's hardened. He's dead in sin. But I have a message from God, the gospel, the good news. And it is what? Powerful to save. There's a third thing I also keep in mind is that God has chosen to save some sinners. And so I have absolute confidence and hope in God that he will save his elect through his gospel. Do I know if he's elect or not? No. How does that come into my gospel presentation? It only comes, it doesn't come into my gospel presentation. I'm not preaching election to this person. They need to hear of Christ. That's the tool that God uses to save them. But I do not forget this doctrine. It's at the forefront of my mind. And I am praying to God that he, if this is one of your children, you will save him, Lord. We say, why bother praying? And why bother preaching? If God said he's going to... If God says he's going to save him, why does he need our help? You know, that's how the modern missions movement got started. Because there was a Baptist in the early 1800s, late 1700s, who said, we need to bring the gospel to the lost. And he was a five-point Calvinist, by the way. I'm not even that. He was the one. And he was told by his Baptist brethren, God will save his elect in his own good time. He doesn't need our help. But this man rightly knew that God has ordained the means by which he saves souls. The prayers of his people, the preaching of the word of God, holy living, biblical worship. These are the things that God uses. You do not evangelize with the doctrine of election, but you do not evangelize ignorance of it. It is woven into every aspect of life and ministry. Acts chapter 18, verses 9 and 10. Paul was at Corinth. He was depressed and discouraged. And Jesus appeared to him. And he said this, Do not be afraid. Speak. Do not keep silent. For I have many people in this city. You need to keep preaching the gospel, Paul. Because there are a lot. Now, now there there was a situation where Paul knew there's a lot here. We don't have that, do we? But we do have the same commission. Preach the gospel. And we have, you have the same confidence. God will save sinners. He will save sinners. And so we preach it with confidence. We're not wasting our time. This should give us, number four, humility and obedience in your evangelism. Humility and obedience in your evangelism. Write down 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 5. Humility and obedience in evangelism. 1 Corinthians 2 talks about the obedience side of things. I don't trust Paul says, Paul says, I don't trust in myself. I don't trust in my speaking ability. That's worthless in God's sight. I simply give the gospel. I urgently give the gospel. I seek to help people understand the gospel so that God will save sinners. Where's the humble part come in? 
Well, it's a passage I already referenced. Acts 13, verse 48. As many as been appointed to eternal life believed. Paul and his missionary company, they didn't do this. Hey, you want to hear what, what we did? Hear how many people we led to the Lord today? Where's the emphasis there? Me. Now, we know what we mean by when we led them to the Lord. And that's okay, but we must keep in mind who does the saving, and we must be humble before our God. And we must give him all the praise when he does that. Just a couple more. Number five, this doctrine gives confidence in daily life for the believer. This confidence in daily life. There are opponents to the doctrine of election who don't like it because they say it doesn't give a motivation to living a godly life and a holy life. Well, has that been the case? Has it been that there have been those who's, who get proud? Without a doubt. And that is sin. I have been called a hyper-Calvinist. That's someone who says you don't need to preach the gospel because God's already gonna, he's already chosen to save. Because I believe what the Bible says here. You know, if somebody says, I don't need to preach the gospel because God's chosen to save them, that's an issue of obedience. That is not an issue of doctrine. They're disobeying a clear command. Go and preach the gospel. Make disciples. Preach repentance and faith. So on some say here, it makes Christians not care about a holy life. That is absolutely wrong. When this doctrine is rightly understood, you have Ephesians 4, 1. Where Paul says there, I beseech you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. You have confidence in daily life because in Christ your life is sealed. It is guaranteed. You are bought by Jesus' death. Do you think there's something in creation that can actually separate you from God's love? No, Romans 8. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. And the last part of application, it does compel a life devoted to God because you love Him. A life devoted to God because you love Him. A life devoted to God because you love him. This should have a daily, every minute effect in your life. Think of this, Christian. Where would you be had not God saved you? You would be lost. That should control how you live every minute of every day. And when you are discouraged, you look to the Lord. You remember his promises. You go to him in prayer knowing your heavenly father loves to hear you. You go through that mediator. The only God mediator between God and men. And you look to him. And he saved you so that you would be to the praise of the glory of his grace. Whether you're doing chores outside or chores inside. Whether you're on a sick bed 
or enjoying good health, live to the praise of the glory of His grace. That is why God saved you. God saved you so that you would live to the glory of His grace. You no longer live for yourself, but you live like the Lord who saved you. Let's pray.